Well, Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the next episode, episode nine of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell, a family doc and professor at the University of Georgia, also editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, an evidence-based online primary care reference. Please check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. So on Primary Care Update, we summarize recent research that we think is relevant and important to primary care clinicians. Uh, The opinions expressed are just that, they're opinions of the commentators. And this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. If you're a primary care doc, please read the article yourself to form your own conclusions. If you're a patient listening in, please talk to your primary care doctor. As always, I'm joined today by my good friends, Dr. John Hickner, uh, editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State University. Henry, how you doing, John? I'm doing well. I want to wish all of our listeners a happy new year and hope that all were safe and warm over the holidays, and we wish you health and prosperity in the upcoming year. And I'm recovering from all the partying over the holiday season, although I didn't quite make it to the midnight celebration this year. I conked out at 1130. <laughs> well, you're going to have to pay attention to the um the quiz that Henry has for us. And I won't say anything more about that, but it's it's relevant to the topic, put it that way. Um, so yeah, let's go ahead. Let's start with our first poll. We've got three really good studies today on important topics, common things that we do all the time. And one of the questions that has come up a lot is, you know, what's the best way to screen for colorectal cancer? The USPSTF endorses seven different approaches. I'm not sure I could even list them all, but uh, colonoscopy, Flexig, uh, fecal occult blood testing with guaiac, uh, fecal immunochemical testing, uh, Cologuard, um, I think CT colonography, and there's probably one other one I'm forgetting, but a whole bunch of different ways. And basically they say, just do it in some way. But the question is, what's the most efficient way? And is using an approach based on fecal immunochemical testing, the newer version of the fecal occult blood test that requires just a single test? and no prep, is that going to give us the same results as colonoscopy? Can we be confident in that? Or are we shortchanging our patients in some way? And I don't think we have the final answer for this, but a study out of uh, Padova, Italy uh, by Dr. Zorzi and colleagues uh, gives us some of the information, and that's what I want to talk about. I actually met Dr. Zorzi briefly when I was, uh, my wife was teaching and doing research in Padova the spring for a few months, and I had a chance to meet with folks in public health there and do some lectures and learn about their work. And actually, Dr. Zorzi, when I met him, I walked into his office and I saw something I had never seen in Italy before, which was a bicycle helmet. And Padova is a super bike crazy town because it's flat. It's in the Veneto. And everyone rides a bike. No one wears a helmet. They look very fashionable. They usually have a cell phone in one hand and a cigarette in the other while they're biking along, but no helmet. So I saw the helmet. I jokingly said, so what's that? And he says, oh, that's a bicycle helmet, <laughs> thinking I had never seen one either. And it turned out he'd fallen on his noggin once and had retrograde amnesia for 15 minutes and scared the crap out of him and his family. So his wife made him promise, always wear a helmet. So if you see a guy wearing a bike helmet in Padova, Italy, <laughs> it's Dr. Zorzi, almost certainly. <laughs> anyway, it's a little distraction there, but um, really a nice guy, does some great work. And he's had a series of publications reporting on the results of their longitudinal, long-term results of colorectal cancer screen in Italy, what they recommend, like many countries, is a fit-based strategy. They don't recommend routine colonoscopy for average-risk persons or for persons who are asymptomatic. And so there, there are several trials underway 
to look at mortality as an outcome, which is ultimately what we need. Until then, we have to rely on things like modeling and observational studies to try to figure out the benefit. And, and he uses the term cumulative sensitivity, which is the detection rate over time, over 10 or 12 years, not just with a single test. So this study reports the results of five rounds of biennial every two years fit in a screening population aged 50 to 69 years in northern Italy. Now, so not surprisingly, the rate of detection of colorectal cancer was highest in that first round of screening. Uh, that's when the prevalent lesions get detected, the ones that had been hanging around for a while, if you will. And they found 3.3 lesions per thousand persons, declining over the next couple of rounds and kind of stabilizing after the third round to about one per thousand persons per screening test. Uh, during rounds three and six, the CRC colorectal cancer screening detection rate declined only a little bit from 0.95 to 0.84 per thousand. So message there is that first round is when you pick up a lot of the cancers. And after the second or third round, even doing it every other year, it kind of stabilizes. A similar pattern was seen for advanced adenomas. And the cumulative rate for advanced adenoma detection was 60 per thousand persons. And for colorectal cancer, eight and a half per thousand persons. And the interesting thing there is that the um, detection rates over time, over that 10-year period, they detected as many colorectal cancers and as many adenomas as you would have in a typical colonoscopy-based program that's been done in the U.S. And so their argument is, well, at least for that outcome in terms of detection, we're doing as well with the FIT-based and obviously at a much lower cost and with fewer colonoscopies. What do you guys think? Does this um, reassure you? Does it raise additional questions for you? John, what do you, what do you think? I feel that it's quite reassuring. I know that a randomized trial in Spain is underway, and when they published their first round of results at roughly three years, they found something similar. That is, they picked up as many cancers. They didn't pick up as many adenomas with the occult blood testing. Uh, it's it's difficult concept for patients to understand. I know my wife hates colonoscopy and was due, and I proposed that she just get the annual fit, and she was a little bit suspicious of that idea compared to colonoscopy, and yet and yet she went ahead and did it. So uh, I think patient acceptance will be an issue, but I think it's a great issue for those who like her don't like colonoscopy. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's um, I think one of the issues is the sensitivity and where you set the cutoff also, because there is a trade-off and you can set it as low as 10 micrograms of hemoglobin per gram of stool or as high as 70 or 80. And when you set it really high, your sensitivity is lower, but you're more specific, fewer false positives. If you set the cutoff really low, you're going to detect more adenomas. And, and studies have been looking at that and seeing that kind of play out. Uh, there was a study that I saw that was looking at, uh, it's called equivalency of fit tests and colonoscopy in familial colorectal cancer screening. So they randomized first-degree relatives of patients with colorectal cancer to either get a single colonoscopy or a fit annually for three years. And at the end of three years, they had essentially identical results, very similar number of cancers and adenomas detected. So again, that idea of cumulative uh, sensitivity over several rounds of screening uh, is ends up being similar to the um, colonoscopy. Of course, the question is, are the outcomes as good? Are the cancers detected as early? 
Henry, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I have two points that I'd like to make. The first is that, as you pointed out, we have many screening options. In fact, there's an eighth screening option that I will mention in a moment. Uh, we use colorectal cancer screening as a foundation for teaching our medical students how to do shared decision making. One of the options that we add, by the way, is to do nothing. Um, the American Cancer Society points out that the lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer is about 4 to 5% for most patients. So what's that quote from the Hunger Games? May the odds be ever in your favor? So that's one of those possibilities that we should at least have a robust discussion about and what are the trade-offs of doing nothing. 95% um, of our patients will probably do just fine. Uh, the second point that I'd like to make is uh, you, you commented about Cologuard fecal DNA testing. It is more expensive and it is less ac accurate. In um, July of 17, we did a poem on a Markov model where fecal DNA testing was not cost effective. And in fact, the researchers could identify no set of assumptions under which it would ever become cost effective. So why do you think they market it directly to consumers along with that eczema cream that costs about $600 a tube? Yeah, it's yes, the little bucks. box with the smiley face on it. <laughs> yeah, the dancing box is what I call it to my students. Yes. And, but we, we, it is a great topic for shared decision-making. It's also great. It, like I use it in teaching as well. And do, we do an exercise where they break into groups and each group gets a different test and has to defend it to the students and we vote and then the winning. It, it's interesting. Almost every time I've done it, FIT has ended up being the strategy everybody voted for in terms of benefit, harm, cost, burden, you know, when they consider all those things. So uh, I'm really looking forward to those Spanish and, and there's a VA trial underway as well. And uh, on the task force, we also looked at um, hybrid strategies and that ended up not, it, although it's, it's made sense to me to say, well, what if you just do a colonoscopy at age 50 and then if they're low risk or no adenomas, just switch over to fit testing. And uh, the, they did look at a, something kind of like that, but I think there may still be some potential to consider those uh, that kind of a strategy to find the high risk persons, the people with the polyposes, the ones um, who might benefit more from colonoscopy. But anyway, good stuff. Um, and like I said, I think it's reassuring. I think it gives us some food for thought and um, we'll wait on the results of those trials. Henry, you got a quiz for us? Yes. So this is just in case your patients are still suffering from too much revelry. We know that none of our listeners would ever have a problem with this, but the question is, the best way to deal with a hangover is A, to avoid alcohol consumption in the first place, B, fluid restriction both before and after drinking, C, fasting before drinking, D, hair of the dog, E, prairie oysters. Stay tuned. Can't wait. Okay, I can't wait. Useful. It's about two days too late for me, but um, it'll still be good to know for next New Year's. Um, so, John, I think it's your turn to talk to us a little bit about one of our favorite topics, li lipids and cholesterol. Yes, I, I love the name that was given to this particular poem written about this, and the, the poet decided to call the clinical question, what do cardiologists recommend for the management of hyperlipidemia? Because indeed, these guidelines had no input from the primary care community, and we'll come back to that. First of all, the guidelines were published, the 2018 guidelines in 2018, 
uh, sponsored by the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology. And this updated the 2013 guidelines, which updated several previous versions. And recall that the 2013 guidelines based treatment decisions primarily on the 10-year risk of a cardiovascular event rather than a specific LDL target. Now, that was a new idea for them. And guess what? They've recanted on that. So we're back back to the past. The 2013 guidelines, I felt, sought to simplify lipid management, though they weren't real super simple. But the 2018 guidelines are really just the opposite with more and complicated recommendations and more risk groups. So they are tougher to work with. A thorough discussion of these guidelines would take us at least a couple of hours. So I'd like just to prevent, uh, present a few highlights and differences from the 23 guidelines and then turn it over to Mark and Henry for some discussion. The most significant difference, as I've already mentioned, is the treatment recommendation now based on target LDL levels, which of course require monitoring therapy, at least on a yearly basis. I think the next most significant recommendations are that ezetimibe and the PCSK9 inhibitors are included in the recommendations for the first time. So they give specific recommendations, and naturally these are for the high-risk patients. Also, the new non-evidence-based guideline uh, recommends universal screening for lipids of children starting at around 10 and to even consider statin therapy of children and adolescents with familial hyperlipidemia. Uh, As we know, these uh, are not based on any randomized trial evidence, but we also know that they have been endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, but not by the American Academy of Family Physicians. So that set of pediatric guidelines will continue to remain controversial. And who knows, I I have my doubts that there will ever be randomized trial data. Uh, The other thing, as I mentioned, is the guidelines have many subgroups to consider. Now, there are luckily some similarities, so we don't have to redo everything. Uh, They divide statin therapy once again, that is the drugs themselves, into high, medium, and low intensity. So that's, that's not really any different. The guidelines for individuals with established vascular disease are still pretty similar to 2013, except, as I said, for the the targets again, they're recommending a goal of 70, which is not necessarily new. And of course, the addition of a zetamibe or a PCSK9 inhibitor if the target has not been reached. For patients with diabetes, in a similar way, they recommend at least moderate statin therapy for all and more intense uh, statin therapy for those who also have significant cardiac risk factors besides the diabetes. So that's similar to the old recommendations, but it's, they go about it a little bit different. For primary prevention, they do go back to the risk calculator using the pooled cohort equation, but they make it a whole lot more complicated in my opinion. Uh, patients are divided into four categories of risk uh, based on the pooled cohort eca- uh, equation. The lowest is less than 5%. Then they have this weird 5 to 7.5% category. I'm not sure where that came from. Then 7.6 to 20, which they consider moderate risk. And over a 20% risk, they consider that, of course, to be high risk. 
And then they go on to make uh, strategies, give us strategies or targets, which are not based on lipid levels. In this case, they're based on a percent reduction of cholesterol. So if you have moderate risk, you should get that cholesterol down 30 to 50%. And if you have high risk, 50% or over. Now, to their credit, they do suggest shared decision-making for primary prevention and considering other risk factors beyond the pooled cohort equation and also patient choice. Uh, So, of course, I had to go to the risk calculator for myself, and and getting older, my risk goes up every year. Uh, When I was 60, my risk was about uh, 6.5%. At approaching 69, my risk now is approaching 20%. That's bad, bad, bad news. So I should be on at least moderate and consider high-level statin therapy. Now, the problem with that is that my mother and father both had lots of brothers. Not a single one of them died of heart disease. Everybody died of cancer or something else. So I have a hard time imagining that my personal real risk is as high as 20%. And again, to their credit, they say uh, patient choice is a factor here. So in my case, my choice would be to not take statin because I think the risk calculator still is based on averages and not individuals. So at at any rate, just to summarize, uh, again, these are guidelines that are much more complicated They were made without any input from the primary care groups who prescribe most of the statins. And I suspect that there will be a lot of controversy and a lot of variation in practice based on these very complex and not all evidence-based guidelines. Your turn, guys. Oy, 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 oy. This feels like going back to antiquated care. You know, the 2013 guideline was refreshingly honest. They basically reported that you know, based on the original studies, they saw that none of the RCTs were um, looking at target cholesterol levels. They basically put people on doses based on their risk profile, evaluated outcomes, and oh, by the way, this was the average LDL, total cholesterol, HDL, what have you, that was achieved. And so the target-based treatment was really an extrapolation well beyond the original research. To this day, I'm still not aware of any new trials that are target-based. So I'm not surprised that, um, that that they got to this point because a little over a year ago, there was this treatment advisory that came from this body that started to back away from the original 2013 guideline. So that doesn't surprise me at all. So my big question on this is not the question that was posed as to what do cardiologists recommend, but why do they recommend this? It was just too elegant and easy to do the fire and forget, I guess, you know, and I I think we like tracking our numbers and doing our math and uh, it's really, you know, unfortunate. I think to your point, John, about the risk calculator, and your personal assessment of risk, you know, the, there have been a lot of studies that that risk calculator overestimates risk by 50% or so. And so your actual risk is probably considerably lower than that, and particularly given that family history, which isn't really a major input into those risk models. In any case, good information, uh, good summary. It's a complicated guideline. There is a nice algorithm. If you, It's freely available on the, uh, the circulation um, journal of the American College of Cardiology and on the, uh, their website, their, this publication is freely available. You don't need a library access or anything. And um, so it does provide an algorithm. I think the question is, 
should it, you know, what, what's the evidence basis for it? And is it good enough to change our practice? And I think we're all a little skeptical of um, how aggressive these guidelines have gotten and particularly the role of these PSK9 inhibitors. This is a great example, I think, of, of very specialty-oriented guidelines that we do need to interpret as primary care physicians. We need to interpret them not only for our patients, but also for ourselves. How is it that we're going to use these in a way that act as guidelines and not rules? They can be guidelines. There's helpful information. So do take a look at the guidelines, at least the executive summary, and then make your choices on how you're going to use these in your own practice. Good advice. So Henry, uh, it is the, the time of year we're getting into cough and flu and pneumonia season. So uh, tell us a little bit about what we can do for those people whose cough just won't go away. Yeah, so this is a systematic review and meta-analysis by speech and colleagues from the British Journal of General Practice, the October 2018 issue. Subacute cough in this study was defined as a cough lasting no more than eight weeks with no radiographic evidence of pneumonia and just mysteriously goes away on its own. We have about a thousand patients every year that have this. Um, this pretty much com is a common problem right after upper respiratory infections and it just continues to linger. So these authors did a fairly limited search. They only looked at PubMed and the Cochrane Clinical Trials Registry to identify clinical trials of various treatments of patients with subacute cough. They were only able to find six crappy little studies with between 30 and 270 patients. The studies included Montelukast, Albuterol plus Ipratropium gelatin, inhaled corticosteroids, and opioids. Overall, the reporting of the study was fairly poor, which made the overall assessment of their quality um, difficult. While they saw some statistically significant improvement in some cough scores, it wasn't universal across all of them, and none of the differences were clinically important. Um, most of them had side effects that ranged from anywhere from zero to 40% for active treatment and zero to quarter for controls. So this basically doesn't tell us that we have many tools in our armamentarium to help these patients other than tincture of time. What was interesting is, but not surprising, that some of the things that we commonly use, like dextromethorphan, benzonitate, or honey and lemon, were not included in any of these studies. Yeah, I think this was, uh, Henry, thank you for that. This was uh, one of the limitations of their methodology was they limited it to studies in primary care. And I think, you know, I certainly think primary care studies are relevant, but I bet a lot of these patients, by the time they've been coughing three or four weeks, have been referred on to a pulmonologist or, you know, some sort of a specialty setting. And so I, I would be curious uh, to see what those studies found. I guess my take on it is um, certainly, you know, obviously make sure you get a chest x-ray to exclude malignancy, make Sure, you think about uh, pertussis. A fair amount of these patients, 5 to 10%, probably have pertussis. Not that you can do anything about it after they've been coughing for three or four weeks, but at least you can know, and that may help in terms of contact tracing. And then I think I, I look at it as like when we treat colic. You try three different things. You give them two weeks of singular. That doesn't work. You give them two weeks of an inhaled steroid. That doesn't work. You give them two weeks of 
dextromethorphan, and then by then it just goes away, and you can claim credit for it. Um, and, and but it's kind of like colic, right? It's going to go away in eight weeks. So um, you know, that's right. Once you rule out the bad stuff, uh, just hold the hand and, and try some hopefully innocuous uh, treatments for the patients, and they may work. We just don't know. It's it's kind of a absence of evidence rather than evidence of absence kind of situation. They may one of these may work, but they just haven't been studied well enough. And recall, this is subacute cough. There are the other categories of chronic cough and acute cough. And for acute cough with respiratory infections, et cetera, we once again know that not much works, maybe a little bit of lemon or whatever, but uh, again, it's a matter of tidying it out. Now, for over eight weeks, though, recall that the three major diagnoses when people cough over eight weeks for non-infectious etiologies are allergies, asthma, and GERD. So those are the things to consider, as Marcus just talked about. And I and I will endorse uh, a uh, a teaspoon, maybe two teaspoons, maybe three of hydrocodone at bedtime when you have pertussis. My wife and I both had pertussis. Uh, she still reminds me that I gave her pertussis, and it, I was an epidemiologically linked case to someone with confirmed pertussis, and we coughed for you know two or three months. And every night, um, and I've never taken it since, but had a couple of teaspoons of hydrocodone. We called it our happy juice, <laughs> knocked us out so we could at least sleep through the night. But um, yeah, so I think there's, and actually, when you look at the evidence for opiates in cough, there's almost nothing. There's almost nothing even for you know hydrocodone or uh, any of them. It probably has some effect, but it just hasn't been studied either. Some of my old timers also report a hot toddy works very well. Not that the coffee goes away, but they no longer care about it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. A good, a good single malt. A, good a little hot, malt. yeah, hot brandy and lemon. Mm. So quiz. All right. I'm going to toss it back to you, Henry. You can tell us how to deal with a hangover. All right. So the best way to deal with a hangover is A, avoid alcohol consumption in the first place. B, fluid restriction both before and after drinking. Fasting before drinking. Hair of the dog or prairie oysters. Well, hangovers are a really disturbing set of symptoms experienced by people who consume heavy amounts of alcohol, and this can typically last for as long as 24 hours after drinking. While the symptoms are quite variable, 80 to 90 percent will report fatigue, thirst, sleepiness, headache, dry mouth, or nausea. While avoidance is best, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said, quote, it's easy to be wise after the event, end quote. There's a long lore about hangover remedies, none of which have sustained the test of time. The ancient Assyrians used a mixture of ground bird's beaks and myrrh. In Rome, they used fried canary, raw owl's eggs, and sheep's lungs. That was thought to be just the ticket. In 19th century New England, sufferers swore by the prairie oyster, which is a combination of raw egg, Worcestershire sauce, tomato juice, vinegar, hot sauce, salt, and black pepper. Yeah. 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 We don't really know what causes them, which is probably part of the problem. Most symptoms appear when the blood alcohol is low and the severity peaks when it drops down to zero, which is probably why the American author Dorothy Parker uh, declared that the best way to avoid a hangover is just to stay drunk. And to her point, the ancient Scottish remedy of hair of the dog certainly remains popular. 
About a year ago, Jaya Wardena and colleagues published a systematic review and found only six randomized trials of, of, of different commercial products. Each helped with some of the symptoms, but none helped with all of them. So until we know the real mechanism, we're going to be probably without any effective evidence-based therapies for a while. Well, I can tell you, if they want to study it, they just have to come to the UGA campus on a game weekend. <laughs> I think you could probably easily recruit, you know, your two or 300 patients for your next Should study. we talk about that game this week, Mark? No, I don't think so. That's, <laughs> okay. That was a, a hangover of a different kind. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Michigan lost, Georgia lost, Michigan State lost, everybody. Yeah. That's just an ugly, ugly week of uh, bowl games. And now I've got to watch Alabama play Clemson, which is going to be even more painful. <laughs> Oh, anyway, enough complaining about football. Not of all of our listeners like football, which is good for them. Um, hope you all get out and enjoy the new year. Um, hope your uh, resolutions all uh, persist at least into next week. And um, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Thanks, John and Henry. Um, please tell your friends about our podcast. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Happy New Year. Bye for now.